you probably don't spend as much time following news cycles as I do. I spend a lot of time following news cycles. And one thing you always notice about news cycles is how often something huge will happen. Everyone will talk about it for a certain period of time. And then it's as if it never happened or people forget about it completely. Or you're like, oh, yeah, right, that. And there are some stories that are probably more surprising in how quickly they are forgotten than others. And this one is one of them. Probably because of where it happened. It happened a long way away from here. But it's been seven years now since two Canadians were kidnapped from a resort in the southern Philippines and killed by militants with Al-Qaeda and ISIS affiliation, a group called Abu Sayyaf. 68-year-old Calgary businessman John Ridsdell and 66-year-old Calgarian Robert Hall uh, were captured alongside Hall's girlfriend, who was from the Philippines, and a Norwegian marina manager at the resort they were at. Both Canadians were killed after their repeated ransom demands uh, reported to have been in, in the area of several million dollars went unmet. Later, though, um, Robert Hall's sister was was quite scathing about what she thought. We Canada obviously doesn't negotiate officially, does not negotiate with terrorists, so we did not. Uh, but a sister of Robert Hall later demanded an inquiry into how the Liberals handed the kidnapping of her brother and the others, saying that, uh, quote, government officials literally did the least they possibly could to help rescue her 66-year-old brother. That very same year, Trudeau, though, spoke about the deaths of Hall and Ridsdale as his single greatest personal regret as leader in that year. But if I had to pick a low point for me personally uh, last year, uh, it was the deaths of two Canadians um, by the Abu Sayyaf group in uh, in the Philippines, which was something that uh, obviously was uh, personally difficult uh, for me uh, as I had... Uh, the responsibility for uh, directing and, and um, articulating the Canadian position, uh, but also the opportunity and the uh, responsibility to speak with their families. Uh, I think uh, reflecting on the fact that we live in a very dangerous world uh, and uh, the responsibility that any government has uh, to keep its citizens safe now and in the future uh, needs to be top of mind. And any time um, situations come up in which uh, we lose lives like that, uh, it's going to be difficult for any leader. That was the Prime Minister back in 2016 reflecting on the deaths uh, of the two Canadian hostages in the Philippines. It really was a horrific, horrific crime. Um, they were beheaded, as was often happening in those days, on video. Um, and then we didn't talk much about what happened afterwards. What happened to those responsible for this? Well, Global Stuart Bell went back to the southern Philippines to find out. And thanks to his reporting, we're learning more about the details about behind what happened after the killings, how it prompted a move to take down Abu Sayyaf and its leaders, including all those involved in the kidnapping and the killing of the Canadians and how the man believed responsible for wielding the blade that took the life of those two men is now in custody in the Philippines and facing trial. Joining me now is Stuart Bell. He's a national online journalist with Global News and part of the investigative team, and he mostly covers foreign affairs and national security. Stuart, thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you. It's one of those stories that was really big and just kind of disappeared. And so it was really time to go back and, and find out what had happened since then. 
Yeah, just as a reminder to listeners about what happened then and then what you, what you went back to find out. Well, in uh, in 2015, uh, two Canadians were kidnapped from a marina in the southern Philippines, along with two others, a Filipina and a Norwegian. And uh, they were kidnapped by a group called Abu Sayyaf, which uh, based in the Philippines and uh, an Islamist extremist group that at the time was aligned with ISIS. And, um, you know, they've been doing a lot of these kidnappings uh, around that time. It was really their source of power. Um, they used it to they used the the ransom money to buy weapons and ammunition and to buy off supporters, frankly. And uh, you know, as with many of these cases, um, Canada was really paralyzed by this situation. Um, you know the, Canada's policy was not to pay ransoms. Uh, and that um, you know it was a, it was a very difficult time it would the premier the prime minister has said how it was really you know his toughest moment um at that time and ultimately uh no ransoms were paid and um the two canadians were beheaded on video and the videos were publicly released so it was really it was an awful moment i think a lot of canadians felt the powerlessness and outrage of the images that were coming out of that time of canadians with uh, with knives at their throats and terrorists making ultimatums. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, to think back to that time, that was at the time where a lot of ISIS videos coming out of the Middle East were showing similar things. This was a part of something that had become uh, quite gruesomely common at the time. You went back to find out what had happened to those who were thought to have been responsible for the kidnappings and the deaths of, of Robert Hall and, and John Ridsdale. Uh, what did you discover? Well, I mean, there had been a trickle of stories emerging from the Philippine press of arrests of people that were allegedly connected to the kidnapping and killings, frankly. And um, so I began to look into it, and it, it just seemed that there was actually quite a few. And so when I went back, I found that there had been a lot. Um, a lot of people had been either arrested or surrendered uh, through a surrender program that's been set up. Or um, they'd been killed, frankly. A lot of them have been killed. And uh, so what we were, I was able to do is sort of go back. Uh, I was able to get a lot of information about the investigation and then trace the people that had been um, identified as the key kidnappers and find out their fates. And frankly, a lot of them are dead. Um, a lot of them were killed in, in various operations over the last few years. One was just killed. A few weeks ago, Frank, uh, honestly, trying to escape, apparently, from prison in Manila. Um, but some of them captured, and among those captured was um, just a few months ago, a guy by the name of Ben Tattoo, who uh, is the man seen on the videos uh, beheading the two Canadians. This was... Um... And and it's not, and you pointed out in the articles that you've written that there was a direct link between what happened to the two Canadians and the crackdown on Abu Sayyaf. Uh, for listeners who don't know, of course, there was active terrorism groups in, in the southern Philippines and have been for quite a while. Yeah, the I think the crackdown that has taken place over the past few years was directly um, a result of that. I think that uh, that kidnapping and those killings were just so, uh, they, they got such global attention, just so horrific, uh, that, and there've been, there've been all, all kinds of kidnappings and, and killings and beheadings, in fact, before that, 
But um, I think this one was really, uh, it just, it led to a desire um, among the Filipinos to just to put an end to this. And uh, there was a crackdown that began and it was kind of in fits and starts, but really in the last couple of years and particularly the last year, it's really, um, it's really shown results with, with just the waves of surrenders, um, a lot of arrests and quite a few killings. Yeah. Did you ever establish how much of a rescue attempt there had been at the time? Because I know there's one part of the article that you put out just today that that speaks about a desire, at least, that the, that the Filipino military were quite close at one point to rescuing uh, Robert Hall and John Ridsdale, but they were being moved around at such at such a fast pace. It was hard to find them, but that we had come close. Yeah, I mean, I was able to get access to some fascinating documents that really told the story of what was going on. Um, and yes, the, the kidnappers were moving the, uh, their hostages frequently, almost every night to, to really promote inaccessible locations on the island of Jolo, which is not a big island. It's about the size of the city of Toronto, but it's, you know, it's a very, uh, remote, inaccessible area. And, um, there were, they were being tracked, uh, by the Philippine, various groups in the Philippine military. And they believe they came very close. Uh, in fact, there was an engagement uh, the night before John Risdell was killed, um, where they believe they they almost got them, but they just weren't able to. There was such um, fierce resistance. And of course, the difficulty of rescuing hostages is you don't want to go in and, and have them killed as a result of your rescue. So uh, the Philippine military backed off and, uh, you know, and we know the results. So you've gone back now, and, and and you were saying that that even now, I mean, the, the group itself, who who made a lot of headlines and, and kidnapped a lot of people over that time, is just a, a shell of its former existence now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I took um, uh, fr- I went from a city called Zamboanga by overnight ferry, which is really the only way to get there, down to Jolo, which used to be the um, you know it used to be the lair of of Abu Sayyaf. And, um, you know, there are remnants of, of Abu Sayyaf around, um, but you can, you can see some of the transition. Oh, I spoke to, um, to a former fighter who had surrendered, um, the, the beach even where they used to bring ashore people that were kidnapped at a place called Parang. Um, and, uh, this is where the Canadians were also brought ashore after they were kidnapped, um, it was interesting because, you know, it, it was the sort of central hub of Abu Sayyaf. And now there's resorts that are springing up and, and people right. you know, swimming and kayaking and paddleboarding and, and singing karaoke. So it was, it was interesting. But there are still a few remnants of Abu Sayyaf that are believed to be out there. Um, but, you know, you can tell the organization really is is significantly weakened. I think they've lost a lot of the public support that they'd relied upon in various communities and you know there hasn't been a kidnapping for uh for two years now so they just aren't able to do what they used to do which is to to really paralyze foreign governments with these kind of um you know kidnapping of their citizens and and these ultimatum videos that was really their source of power in the past yeah you referred to it as uh, from terrorism to tourism in that area which is a which is a which is an age-old uh mm-hmm. tactic as well when you spoke to those who were responsible uh, for the kidnappings, or at least people who'd been involved in the kidnappings, not necessarily those who had 
held the knives or so on. Did you hear anything about that time, about about their experience with the Canadians, what it was like? Uh, I, I did speak to one um, fellow who had been a guard, and uh, he just, he didn't seem to, he didn't think much about it at the time, but he said that when he later heard that they'd been beheaded, he felt bad about it. He felt sorry about it. Um, ben Tattoo and his brother we saw in prison, but neither of them would speak to us. But they clearly did not look happy to be, uh, you know, to be in the situation. The tables are really turned. This, you know, Tattoo was a guy who his job was to take hostages. His job was to, you know, to keep prisoners and guard them. And now he's in the reverse situation. And he doesn't seem pleased about it. Um, but he's facing a lot of different charges, including for the killing of these two Canadians. And he will stay there, presumably, and face trial in the Philippines. There's no chances of him being charged here, I'd imagine. The, there is a trial that is beginning. It's it's being held in Manila for security reasons instead of in the South. And my understanding from speaking to Canadian officials is that Canada will not be uh, seeking to bring him or any others to Canada to stand trial. They will allow these cases to uh, to play out in the Philippines. A legacy of this case then, because as you mentioned, uh, it was it was one of those cases that received so much attention at the time and, and it was it, and just the way it unfolded and the tragedy behind it all and the amount of sympathy for Robert Hall and John Ridsdale uh, at the time, that it's true, we'd sort of lost touch with what had happened. But what do you think the legacy of of their tragic deaths would be? Well, probably one of the most fitting um resolutions of a an incident like this or, or maybe the most fitting way of of honoring people like these two canadians is the destruction of the organization that caused them such suffering and that's exactly what's happened uh, i mean they're not here to know that unfortunately but uh, hopefully their families and the survivors of abu saf will know that um, this organization has been dealt with and that it's no longer it just no longer is even capable of doing the kinds of things that it did in the past and hopefully this era of of just you know brutal kidnappings and and murders um that really gave uh the philippines uh a bad reputation hopefully yeah. that's something that they can put behind them Stuart Bell, a fascinating story. I suggest people go read it on globalnews.ca. There's also a TV story as well. And Stuart, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you.